We are in the season of resurrection. Remember in the church, we don't just celebrate the holiday. We get a whole festival time afterwards. In the season of Easter, we remember to focus our eyes for new life, to be looking for resurrection in the world. And I suggest we look to our children. To remind us of that, we hear today the good word from Paul's letter to Timothy as he's serving and working in the church in Ephesus. Starting in the second half of the seventh verse, Paul says, Train yourself for a holy life. While physical training has some value, training in holy living is useful for everything. It has promise for this life now and the life to come. This saying is reliable and deserves complete acceptance. We work and struggle for this. Our hope is set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command these things. Teach them. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Instead, set an example for the believers through your speech, behavior, love, faith, and by being sexually pure. Until I arrive, pay attention to public reading, preaching, and teaching. Don't neglect the spiritual gift in you that was given through prophecy when the elders laid hands on you. Practice these things and live by them so that your progress will be visible to all. Focus on working on your own development, on what you teach. If you do this, you will save yourself and those who hear you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, save us from ourselves and our proclivity for self-destruction. May in this time of hearing your word, may you penetrate our hearts and open our eyes to your love. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be a pleasing sacrifice to you. Amen. Will our children save the world? The Avengers are certainly trying. For those of you who aren't familiar, there's sort of a multi-billion dollar phenomena happening the past few years. The Marvel Studios cycle and a massive part of one of the phases, phase three ending this weekend with the Avengers Endgame movie. The story, if you're not familiar, is based around an ecological problem. Thanos is the bad guy. But unlike most bad guys, Thanos isn't interested in destroying people because it looks like fun. No, Thanos's motivation was an ecological one. He has his home planet called Titan, and Titan was a planet of godlike creatures, but Titan was facing catastrophic overpopulation. So Thanos had a plan. He said, we should, by lottery, murder half of our population, and that would leave enough resources for the world and the species to survive. Well, in the story, his planet did not do his plan. They let everyone keep living and his planet was driven to extinction. So Thanos takes it upon himself to find these infinity stones, and then the last movie he does a snap, and then half of the universe's population dies, and it's kind of epic. <laughs> Spoiler alert. This is class classic Malthus, for those of you who love economic history. Malthus was a economic historian of the 1700s who believed that at, by the end of the 1700s, the world would evaporate 
because there would be too many humans. You look at the curves for food supply and humanity's growth, and there is just not possibly going to be enough for everybody to go around. And this has been said generations since then, and over time, technology and farming techniques continue to grow, and we've continued to survive thus far. But it would seem at some point, according to the climate scientists, that we need someone, the Avengers, or somebody to save us from the incoming problem that we have not yet solved, climate change. And I'd like to suggest that our children could be our superheroes and our salvation. Now, it's hard to imagine when we're begging our children to stop yelling at their siblings' injustices, when we implore them to clean up that ketchup that they sprayed all over the floor and tracked across the kitchen floor, when we're beseeching them to unglue themselves from the device or the screen that they seem addicted to, they hardly seem like the proprietors of the coming kingdom of justice, mercy, and ecological shalom. <clears throat> but then, then these same kids will do remarkably well, usually better than adults remembering to turn off the lights after they leave a room. They come home from a trip at the Montgomery County Recycling Center, as Theo did, and teach us what numbers of the plastic we're supposed to be recycling, which we should not. And it gives me great hope. My hope is in our children, but we're only going to be able to have them give us as much hope as we give them value. And we live in a world, a system that tells us that only capital-producing humans are valuable. If you don't have a job, you're not really that important. If it was true, then why in our culture we go, go around saying, what gives you joy or what's your passion, instead of saying, what do you do for a living? We know what that actually means, right? How do you create capital? How valuable is the work you do from nine to five? But when capital is the God we worship, anyone who isn't giving their best sacrifices to that God is considered apostate. Anyone who's taken time off of work to take care of a child or a loved one, an aging relative, are often considered less valuable to the system. Think about how we even talk about the elderly. We describe them as retirees. We talk about our students' school as job preparation. They're all based on what they're going to do for their jobs. It's a sickness. Now, maybe the way that the world sees our children, but it's not a biblical worldview. We start, of course, right with Genesis 1, which is the basis for any eco-theology. Right when God creates the world and calls it all good, we are told that humanity was created in the image of God. The Latin phrase often used around it, the imago dei, is one of the most important phrases, not just in classic theology, but the modern ethics we're trying to live out today. Because it's a reminder that the whole world reflects a piece of the holy God. The whole world is an incarnation of love, not just humans between the ages of 22 and 65. 
Recently, a friend went on a trip to Amsterdam, and she was astonished. She was astonished by the number of playgrounds. They're everywhere in Amsterdam. She was looking around at all these playgrounds and all these happy children, and she was trying to figure out why. Why would all these children have all these opportunities, all these playgrounds? We have just as many children in the United States in general. What's going on here? And then she noticed in the coffee shops several dads at once feeding their little ones, often in the ergo carrier, a little piece of their pastries. And then it hit her. It had to do with parental leave policies. Because that society values not just your capital creation, but also your social nurturing of other humans. There in Amsterdam, you get a year of parental leave, no matter your gender. So often, couples will have the mother stay at home for a year with the child, and then when her parental leave time is up, the father will take his parental leave time. So instead of what typically happens in American culture, where dads don't do as much of the handling of the children, as much knowing where the clothes are, and this stuff has been well documented by folks like Malcolm Gladwell. Instead, in Amsterdam, you have men who understand the responsibilities of childcare. And what do you think the policies in terms of urban planning, the policies in terms of the way they treat their non-capital producing humans look like when men are taught that children are our blessing? It could be hard for children to be valued. Paul reminds us to his, in his letter to Timothy about this problem. Now, Paul has met Timothy and his amazing mother and his grandmother back in Lystra, and he was impressed by him. He eventually brings Timothy along in his missionary journeys. At some point, Paul sends off Timothy to Ephesus, which is one of the bigger churches. This wasn't a small assignment. And he writes this letter, possibly, it's hard to know if this is really his writing, but certainly the teachings are likely something that Paul would have said. But Paul is acknowledging that Timothy is young compared to the leaders who are given stance. Because if you are older, that's your power in the churches of that time. So older leaders are given more power, and Timothy is a mere probably 30 or younger at this point. So Paul writes and reminds Timothy that he has something to say because he's been ordained by God for this mission. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Instead, set an example for the believers through your speech, your behavior, your love, and your faith. Pay attention to public reading, liturgist, assistant liturgist, preaching, teaching. Don't neglect the spiritual gift in you that was given through prophecy when the elders laid hands on you. Quick recap, God creates all humans in the imago dei, the image of God. And Paul reminds us that even the young have something to teach us. Now this is usually the part of the sermon where the pastor struggles to tie in some illustration that somehow lights up to you. Yes, this theological truth from the ancient text is somehow being paralleled in the modern world. 
you literally just have to open your eyes to see the ways that children are blessing us, not just in the present moment, but with a possible future and a survival of the species. I'm wildly impressed with the movement that's been begun by Greta Thunberg. At age 15, Greta felt isolated and lonely. But she was passionate about this impending climate crisis that was facing us. Now, while Sweden was having its parliamentary elections, she decided to skip school and sat on the steps of the parliament building demanding radical solutions for climate change for three weeks. Since then, she changed her tactic. She's decided to skip school just every Friday. But her inspiration has begun a movement. Now, in December, she was invited to the UN's climate conference, the COP24, and she had these tough words for us older generations. Greta said, you are not mature enough to tell it like it is. Even that burden you leave to us children. But I don't care about being popular. I care about climate justice and the living planet. Do you see the Imago Dei in her? Do you feel Paul's exhortations to Timothy to remember that spiritual gift given to her upon ordination? I certainly do. I can usually tell by the fruit produced whether that person is in touch with the Spirit. And indeed, Greta has inspired 70,000 students in 400 cities across the world who are also now skipping school every Friday. <laughs> Going through this movement called the Fridays for Future, as they are protesting the inaction on climate change being done by their parents and their grandparents' generations. Of course, here in the States, there's the more publicized court case, Juliana versus the United States, where our children, with the help of our children's trust, are demanding that our government make a plan to not emit carbon emissions on the grounds that the government has an obligation to take, any, to take no action that would eliminate their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are epic actions for extraordinary times. But as anyone who has studied social movements can tell you, these epic actions are consequences of smaller movements of the spirit among us. I recently asked my young Presbyterian church leaders Facebook group ways that they've seen their youth or their students rise up to this incredible challenge, being fueled by their faith and their belief in the Imago Dei and our call to care for creation. The stories started pouring in. There's a story of the Powhatan school sixth graders, Ellie Bessett and Lexi Plotz, who convinced their mayor, David Smith of Winchester, Virginia, to declare the week of April 21st through 27th, that's the last straw week. And this week, no plastic straws were to be sold temporarily unless asked for. And the movement, of course, has rippled across and other students have set up meetings with their mayors in their towns across the United States of America. The fossil fuel divestment campaign is being credited with having started at college campuses primarily. And as of September, this campaign has been done in 37 countries that now have divested $6 trillion from fossil fuel companies. 
Indeed, Shell is now saying that one of the risks to its future performance is the divestment movement. When they start putting it down in paper, you know this has become a big deal. According to a 2015 study, more than 9 in 10 millennials would switch brands to another one associated with a cause. And millennials are, quote, prepared to make personal sacrifices to make an impact on issues they care about. Whether that's paying for more of a product, sharing products rather than buying, or taking a pay cut to work for a responsible company. And as millennials are now about 80 million in number and have consumer spending of about $1 trillion, it's something we should probably pay attention to. Other stories started coming in. In Montgomery County, Youth for Change are doing incredible things right here next to us. There are all sorts of youth groups working for a straw-free church. In Great Britain, a couple weeks ago, we had the synchronized swimming duet, Kate Shortman and Isabel Thorpe, who made a splash by attempting their world championship routine swimming in a pool of floating plastic waste. And of course, their movement is now spread all over the world. One of my favorite, though, in terms of the personal piece of the story, is from a friend, Laura Blank, a pastor, who said, back in December, one of our second graders asked if we could start a recycling committee because she's a great Presbyterian. Because we love committees. I don't know if we had to underline that part. And of course, it took off from there. They started with recycling bins in the building that are monitored by the youth because there's no municipal recycling, so they have to take it to a collection center. Then they set a goal to plant 30 trees to replace a group of pine trees they had to cut down for safety reasons. They bought 70 seedlings from the County Conservation Society and planted them at the pastor's house at homes around the community and gave them to food bank clients. They made wildflower seed bombs out of old bulletins to give to worshipers on Easter. And next up is origami cranes out of the old bulletins for Pentecost. And all of this, they have self-funded through the kids taking up a noisy offering of coins and galvanized buckets during the offering. They count the change, they roll the change, and they are keeping track of their own income and expenses. My friends, if we do not live for the living God, even the rocks will cry out. And our children will too. Our directory of worship says that God sends the church to share in the stewardship of creation, preserving the goodness and glory of the earth that God has made. There's a radical shift that happens when we know that our children are not just something that we take care of, but someone and some buddies that can take care of us. There are radical ways that youth can empower us. Recently, we had Wi-Fi installed in this side of the building, and so soon our youth are gonna be teaching those who are interested how to use their Kindles and their iPads and any other electronic devices they'd like. And of course, they're going to show you ways that you can get involved in justice through your own personal computers. Jesus said, let the children come to me, not because he wanted to make sure that they got a pat on the head, but because he knew they would be a blessing to him. 
may we look for the blessing that is our children because they may very well be the salvation of us and our earth. Thanks be to God, to our Lord Jesus Christ, who reminds us to look for the children that lead us onward.